This is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the principal of Adamantine Energy. This season, we've been talking to game-changing leaders in the oil and gas industry. And today I'm going to talk to a really great leader who's adjacent to our work in an arena that many oil and gas leaders are passionate about, energy for prosperity around the world. Today, I speak with Rose Mutiso. She is the research director for the Energy for Growth Hub, where I'm proud to serve on the board of directors. Rose is also the co-founder and CEO of the Mawazo Institute, a nonprofit research institute based in Nairobi, Kenya. And that center works on female thought leadership in East Africa. Previously, Rose has served in the U.S. Department of Energy, Office of International Affairs, and was an Energy and Innovation Policy Fellow in the U.S. Congress. Rose has been featured in two amazing TED Talks, which we'll link to in the show notes, and I highly recommend that you watch. Um, What is also amazing is that Rose holds a PhD in Materials Science and Engineering from the University of Pennsylvania and a bachelor's degree in Engineering Science uh, from Dartmouth College. Um, I think you'll really enjoy uh, our whole conversation, but there's some there's really interesting uh, tidbit in there about what would happen if you converted all the energy needs in sub-Saharan Africa, Africa to natural gas. Um, if you'd like to learn more about the Energy Thinks podcast and our work at Adamantine, please visit us at energythinks.com. Now, please enjoy my conversation with game-changing leader, Rose Mutiso. So Rose, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Great. Well, I want to help our, our audience get oriented. So um, we all have an interest in, in addressing disparity in energy use around the world, um, but not everyone is, understands why high energy is so important to bring to bringing developing economies into the middle class. Can you talk a little bit about energy disparity and the role of energy at scale? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. And I have to say, yeah, the, the word high energy kind of is kind of opens itself up to lots of misinterpretation. For example, means something totally different to physicists, uh, high energy physicists, for example. And, and I think maybe sometimes to a kind of uh, a, 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 a kind of the, the new late capitalist sensibility of maybe less, you know, maybe, you know, this message mm-hmm. of more, 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 we need more and more and big and big, it seems to be kind of counter that trend. And so it's important to lay out why this is a framing we're, we're kind of uh, deliberately selecting. Um, and that's because, you know, simply, um, and this is something that rich countries, people, many people in rich countries take for granted, but without energy, there's, there's no economic growth, there are no jobs, there are no factories, there are no high-speed trains, you know, this is just this invisible driver of, uh, that underpins modern lives. And, and so, you know, our work, you know, the energy sector is very massive at the Energy for Growth Hub. Our work focuses on the power sector, which really is, you know, this kind of invisible super juice that makes our ball go around, especially in this kind of supercharged digital world we live in. And so the message is we need electricity to power industries, businesses, office buildings, productive sectors. Um, The development community has caught on to this. We have this SDG seven sustainable development goals. Uh, Probably most of you, your listeners are familiar. Um, And, you know, this was kind of when the development community started to realize that it's not just about, 
you know, vaccines for children and all of these other kind of, um, you know, really important development goals or like uh, uh, rights for women. These are all things that we obviously believe in, but, you know, kind of in that conversation in the MDGs that preceded SDGs, I think energy was left behind. It was this kind of nerdy technical thing that nobody knew. So now people get it. People created an SDG that, you know, was targeting energy and saying this is important for development. We, however, the Energy for Growth Hub, think it doesn't go far enough because first it's a metric that's really focused on residential use and households and a very low bar. So it's like, you know, if households have, which don't have electricity currently, which obviously is terrible. Um, so, uh, but then, you know, the, the idea is like, okay, let's get households in Africa and in developing Asia, let's get them some lights, let's get them some kind of mobile charging, which obviously are good things, but I think really misses the point of what energy poverty is. And energy poverty is that in sub-Saharan Africa and developing Asia and many countries that there's, the, the productive centers are completely missing energy. And, and this is not like, you know, I think this is not, uh, you know, chump change energy. This is, you, you need massive infrastructural investments to be able to power productivity. And, you know, uh, some, some numbers that we like to throw out are, you know, the average per capita annual consumption in sub-Saharan African countries, uh, numerous sub-Saharan countries is about 200 kilowatt hours, this is how we measure energy, uh, electricity consumption. Now, this is about what an, um, uh, an ordinary American fridge uses in a year, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so like the, the scale, like I think there's just like, a, people really need to think, think about scale so differently mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, our, our ambitions for uh, entire countries fall below what we use just for an ordinary appliance in our home. and. Um, you know, this compares to annual capa- capa- per capita consumption in countries like China is about 4,000 units. Uh, in the U.S., obviously, high consumer may be too high, 13,000. And in fact, there's no rich country, high-income country, that doesn't have a high-energy consumption uh, profile. And so about 3,000 kilowatt hours for rich countries. And middle-income countries are all at the 1,000 kilowatt hour mm. threshold, whereas African countries are at this... 200, often sub 200 kilowatt hours per capita per year, which just tells us that not only is electricity not being consumed in the home, which has all of these terrible social uh, kind of quality of life implications, but it also not being consumed in industries as a, or in productive centers. And so really need to change the narrative and really understand that the question of scale is massive. Like this is a, a few solar kind of um, small solar kind of um, setups here and there, and a few lights is not going to cut it. It was so life changing for me, Rose, when I um, understood how unambitious SDG, the Sustainable Development Goal Seven, focused on energy, was in this context of trying to build cities build productive economies where jobs can be created things can be manufactured people can move around on less than what an american uses for their fridge um that's a really it's a it's a it's such a stark contrast um and i love i love the way you set that up and i love your reference to invisible super juice because isn't it it's so true that it's easy for people to take energy for granted. And the idea of, of using energy to help economies transform, to change all the outcomes we care about around education and productivity and, and people being able not only to support themselves, but build prosperous communities. So 
returning to invisible super juice, I imagine because the hub is focused on um, electricity, that the, the immediate response you get from development agencies and people financing international development is, well, yeah, of course, of course we're gonna power cities and we're gonna use wind and solar. Um, and because climate is most important and climate is going to affect these developing economies more than anyone else. So I'm, I'm hoping you'll, you'll tell us a little bit about what's wrong. Maybe you don't have to say wrong. I can say what's wrong with that thinking. You can use whatever words you want. Um, because of this idea of like, there's a finite carbon budget and we've reached it. And so now we're going to focus on our invisible super juice with wind and solar. So Rose, tell, tell us what you think about that and how you, how you set up that paradigm. Yeah. So obviously like, um, most people in the world, uh, except perhaps some notable politicians, cynical politicians, obviously I, I really believe that climate change is. <laughs> the crisis of our age, I, you know, I sometimes lose sleep over it and imagine the dystopic future that we might wake up to or perhaps already living. So climate change is serious. This is, there's, there's no joking around here. And I think something that is difficult for all of us to reconcile is kind of where we are, even taking the politics aside, even if we all today kind of uh, remove the cynicism and we're like, this is a real thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's some distance between where we are and where we need to be. And there needs to be, I think this idea of a, an energy transition is important and it's, it's hard because of the urgency. So anyway, uh, the whole point is everybody needs to undergo a really significant energy transition, rich countries, poor countries, everyone, we're all in this together. Uh, but the idea here is that, you know, different countries will have different pathways. And poor countries in particular, who um, I, 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 you know, whose kind of interests I, I, I do my best to represent in, in, in my work, uh, in particular, uh, for different reasons, uh, will have a very, very different pathway. So, you know, I think the conventional wisdom for most countries is, okay, how do we fight climate change? Let's uh, decarbonize our power sectors or our other high emission sectors. Obviously I talk a little about power sector, which is a, a major um, piece of our emissions pie. But yes, anyway, rich countries are like, okay, how can we decarbonize? And then also we need to cut energy use. So this kind of austerity mitigation framework um, for Sub-Saharan African countries, uh, maybe accepting South Africa. So let's take South Africa out, which is, um, our kind of um, sub-Saharan African sibling that is even too unique for us when it comes to power sector issues. Um, taking that out, you know, this, you know, austerity mitigation framework is a little bit backwards. You know, for sub-Saharan African countries are such negligible contributors and our energy sectors and, and especially power sectors are too small to have any meaningful, there's nothing to cut basically. Um, and, you know, 47 uh, sub-Saharan African countries, um, collectively are, uh, you know, account for less than 1% uh, or just about 1% of the cumulative CO2, uh, you know, since uh, the industrial, since they've been counting. Uh, you know, so this is this is a small piece of the cake. And so like, you know, the, the, this is not a strategy that makes sense. And then uh, this, this, there's nothing to cut. It's too small, too negligible. Um, and then the other thing is uh, Sub-Saharan Africa needs Africa to grow to, I mean, so sub-Saharan African countries, I'm sorry, sub-Saharan African countries need energy in a big way to grow mm -hmm. and to adapt in a mm -hmm. kind of very 
climate vulnerable context. And so you need, you know, we need the industries to make the jobs and give people opportunities and to make our agriculture more robust and modernized and to create infrastructure that can kind of withstand all of these effects. And these are all energy intensive things. And so actually, and you know, we're so early in our development trajectories that our energy should be going okay, um, upwards. Mm -hmm. It should be going up. This is not a cutting back austerity scenario. So it's just a completely different starting point. And then the third point we would like to make, um, in addition to this idea of like, you know, mitigation is backwards, um, energy austerity is backwards, we kind of need more, more energy, uh, a kind of a high energy growth scenario is this idea of um, climate justice and hypocrisy, you know, I think, you know, rich countries, uh, even the ones that talk a big talk about climate, which I'm glad they do, like, you know, EU mm -hmm. countries and whatnot, that are very aggressive, I'm glad that they have a strong stance on climate but you know all of these countries are really carbon intensive mm -hmm. and you know uh and are you know even actively like um uh producing or kind of investing in fossil like natural gas oil and gas in africa for use at home mm -hmm. you know and so sometimes there's a little bit of a it almost seems like a scapegoating exercise like really putting a focus uh, you know the part of of, uh, it seems, uh, policy that governments, Western governments seem to have a lot of control over is this kind of the foreign policy mm -hmm. development aid bid. And this is where I think that has become a platform to really kind of flex your muscles. So if you care about um, climate and you're kind of hamstrung at home because of toxic politics and whatnot, like this kind of tiny, <laughs> tiny uh, part of your policies where you're going to like make a really big, um, uh, push and, and, and be really aggressive, like zero tolerance for carbon, you know, in this, you know, mm -hmm. in the outward facing part of your policy. And so sometimes uh, in Africa, we look at that and we kind of, you know, want to roll our eyes that, you know, the carbon problem is not, is not with us. And that to, to point the finger at us is, I think, uh, not just an issue of hypocrisy, but it also makes us feel like there are kind of two standards uh, in the yeah. world. And, and we are kind of subject to, um, kind of we, we we cannot we we cannot be allowed to aspire to grow to do things um, right let, let me pull on that third point a little bit because um one of the things that i've learned a lot from the work at the energy for growth hub is is in a in a scenario of a quickly changing climate and a developing uh, sub-saharan african um network of of economies the the one of the most important things will be the energy for adaption. And I, I hadn't really come to terms with how much um, oil and natural gas and related resources are needed for things like fertilizer for grow growing populations, um, but also for the infrastructure needed. Can you talk a little bit about adaptation and what energy needs are there so that even in a world where um, the climate is changing and we're 100% focused on mitigation and adaption, the, maybe one of the most important things we can do for developing economies is give them these resources. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so the way I like to, okay, so to kind of breaking your, your, your question into two pieces, you know, what is the, what are the energy needs for adaptation and for this kind of um, world and particularly given that African countries and poor countries are very vulnerable already are, you know, we're facing droughts and so um you know we'll need uh desalination we'll need irrigation in a big way um we need our our infrastructure is you know um i mean uh, not a technical term but rather flimsy you know we don't have the really kind of <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, our our buildings are, are both not um 
robust physically, but also, you know, smart and efficient and all of these kind of, and modern and whatnot. Uh, we will need cooling. We already do with extreme temperatures uh, and not just ACs, but refrigeration. And so food waste is already a massive problem in African countries and this is gonna get worse. And so mm -hmm. all of these activities to kind of shore up um, these many facets of our lives require energy. We need to power our cooling and we need to, um, irrigate and, 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 you know, uh, and w you know, we need also just robust economies, um, you know, where individuals in Sub-Saharan Africa have jobs and are able to kind of, um, you know, are, yeah, they just live full, full lives and have dignified work. And that just makes you better able to adapt even at an individual level. And then the economy as a whole is, is robust. Um, so all of these things, um, you know, need energy, need electricity. So that's the, the energy needs are, are massive. So in terms of like, how do we kind of, how do we circle that square when you think about climate that all of that there's no doubt we need a lot of energy mm -hmm. um, to adapt and um, the the way that we can for you know many of those use cases like you said say fertilizer you know or whatnot um, or transportation uh, you know we don't have good alternatives outside of the the the, the fossil world and then and even many sub-Saharan African countries uh, re rely on these natural resources like oil and gas mm -hmm. as big parts of the economy. So the question is, so what, how do we, this seems like, how do we solve this problem uh, that we have massive needs and many of these have to be met? Uh, what, are, what are the alternatives outside of carbon? You know, my answer to that is, you know, this is a massive problem, but it's not just Africa's problem. And I think what I love about what the Energy for Growth Hub tries to do is kind of shift us from this, um, um, almost ghettoization of Africa and its problems and kind of find common cause. So yes, this, the, the circumstances are different and that's what we're saying and the pathways might be different, but then rich countries who are, have so much sunk costs and locked in infrastructure mm -hmm. and massive energy needs, extremely carbon intensive economies need to solve this very same problem. Mm -hmm. You know, and so we there's, there's a real sense of common cause. This is not just a problem that we need to kind of create some bespoke solution for how do you have a thriving, robust energy intensive economy that's, you know, low carbon. This is not a question that only Africa needs to answer. Actually, the West needs to answer that more so. And so I think Western countries taking this seriously in their own economies is going to be a real boon for the rest of the world in kind of finding the innovations, finding the solutions, and, and then really seeing global partners, even poor countries as peers, like we're in the same, like we're not just kind of off in some ghetto of our own unique poor people problems, like our problems are the same now, just we have to have nuance in how we approach them and diagnose them and I, solve I them, the but it's the same. Yeah. I love the way you're 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 completely changing um, my my paradigm in real time, and I appreciate that because we have these twin um, crises developing at the same time, which is what I believe should be a, a huge global priority, which is that we bring our 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 global neighbors out of poverty and into the middle class, 
and at the same time solving these decarbonization challenges. So I love your reframing as um, essentially is rowing in the same direction with these share these shared ambitions. Um, so let, let me put that in context a little bit for our listeners, because um, you did, you've you done a couple of great TED Talks, which we will link in the show notes, um, that are very informative and moving somehow in only eight minutes each or something like that. You, you do a, a lifetime of work in a very short amount of time. But one thing you mentioned is that by uh, 2100, one in four people in the world will be African. And I think this helps bring... Um, into focus the idea of our of our neighborhood to your to use your metaphor around our neighborhood and that we have a neighborhood that we should have some shared um, ambitions for and some shared um, objectives for tell us what you think um, what how, how does this put these priorities in into some perspective for you or, or what what do you even recommend how our listeners think about that yeah I think when 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 I think about Africa and um, the 21st century and our demographics, like you just uh, cited, I, I and many people, uh, and especially African governments and African leaders, top of mind is jobs. What, what are we going to do about jobs? Uh, we have a very youthful population um, by 2050, you know, over a billion people will be of working age. Um, in Africa, you know, this is, and already we, you know, we have such a dearth of, of opportunities of jobs of dignified work. Mm -hmm. This is massive. Um, and this, this is more, you know, this is, this is more front of mind than, than, you know, even climate or for most African leaders, obviously interrelated, but this is like the, mm -hmm. this is the lever that they're trying to, to push on. Um, and, and so that's for, for me, number one is jobs and, and very, like I said earlier, really important for jobs is, is energy that powers and enables productive centers, whether those are businesses, big or small or industries or whatever it is, whatever other activities or even our digital infrastructure that helps young people get connected and find, you know, be entrepreneurial or find other opportunities all over the, the, the globally from their laptops, you know, whatever it is, all of this, the, the energy picture is crucial. Obviously energy is just one, one piece of it, but um, uh, that, that's a big thing, jobs. And the second thing is just what we've discussed is all of these people, this one in four uh, humans by 2100 will be living in a very difficult um, uh, context. Like, you know, uh, we're hoping to make progress and turn the tide on climate, but you know the world that we'll live in in twenty one hundred is most likely going to be quite different mm -hmm. than the one we live in now. I mean, let's you know face some facts. Probably, <laughs> you know, we 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 a lot of the debt we'll be sowing, uh, we'll be reaping um, reaping the this the, the 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 harvest of this terrible climate damage that we've done, and so all of these uh, people, many of whom will be African, will be, you know, continue to be extremely vulnerable, will be living under very difficult conditions. And so those are the two things I think about is where are the jobs for this people mm -hmm. and how do, how do they manage their lives in a very difficult uh, context of rising temperatures and other climate impacts. 
We will be back to the Energy Thinks podcast momentarily, but if you work in the oil and gas industry, you understand that we are facing a massive set of disruptions that are unprecedented in our lifetime. This pandemic has upended the world in which we operate in. How can oil and gas leaders face these disruptions in ways that aren't just reactive, but proactive? Tisha Schuler's new book, The Game Changers Playbook, How Oil and Gas Leaders Thrive in an Era of Continuous Disruption, is that guide for oil and gas leaders who want to make sense of this moment and chart a better path forward. Order your copy today at energythinks.com backslash game changer. That's energythinks.com backslash game changer. And now back to the show. Yeah, and if we're looking at shared um, objectives, what, what do we do in a rich country like America when we have a jobs crisis? We do a big infrastructure build so that we uh, both find meaningful work and prepare for the future. I'm doing, doing that in a high energy context for developing economy where you said we'll have a billion people of working ages. You could see some extraordinary alliance mm-hmm. of interests with that. So I, I, I really love the picture that you paint. Um, uh, Rose, when I, tra- I traveled in 2019 to Ghana with the Energy for Growth Hub, and one of the most striking experiences I had when I was held, held to account um, for international uh, resistance to fund energy projects in Ghana at the same time that international oil and gas companies were developing um, Ghana's natural gas resource offshore. And um, it the I mean, there's really no better word. I try not to go into hypocrisy land because it doesn't usually build friends, but I but it was just so startling to be in a country where they want to build uh, energy infrastructure for manufacturing and their own resources being developed offshore, but the international community is denying them the opportunity to get financing um, to to build uh, to build their own infrastructure. Uh, so my, my question for you is just to take on one example of natural gas. So a lot of our uh, listeners work in the oil and gas industry. And, and there's a maybe a misunderstanding of the role natural gas can play in development or should play or may play versus wind and solar. And I'm just curious your thoughts about what, what role could natural gas play in sub-Saharan Africa? And is, is it worth the carbon budget from your perspective that it that it requires uh yeah so and this is why i like to like you know very carefully parcel out sub-saharan africa from everybody yes. else yes. <laughs> yeah uh, you know um uh todd moss at the energy for growth hub and other who you know really well and um and other colleagues um just you know did this thought experiment which is you know if everyone like the 1 billion people in sub-saharan africa and 47 countries so minus south africa if okay every every one of those billion people in sub-saharan africa triple their electricity consumption overnight and if a hundred percent of all that new power came from natural gas the effect the emissions effect would you know be equivalent to just 0.6 percent of annual global emissions you know it's like i said before this is such a negligible player like you know um even with a really aggressive kind of development targets and growth targets and um, energy infrastructure infrastructure um uh goals that african countries have set uh you know we're setting from such a low baseline it'll take us a while um to 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 really show up as in in the emissions the, the world's emissions profile and so um with that in mind uh we shouldn't people like really freak out about sub-saharan africa they're like oh my gosh you know 
like, you know, we close, like, like we blink and like tomorrow Gabon is the next China or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously <laughs> not gonna happen. <laughs> you know, this small countries, even collectively, you know, I'm sure, you know, obviously Africa is going to have, is going to grow. Like, I don't want to say Africa is gonna, it's gonna be, you know, um, a minor player, but, you know, in, for the foreseeable future, there's, you know, there's a growth trajectory that needs to be followed and it will take a little while. And so, uh, so that's one piece of it. And then, you know, globally, in as much as we want to have, uh, you know, many countries, many people want a very kind of aggressive renewables only agenda, we're just not, the technology isn't there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this is true of Africa and more so because we have very kind of unsophisticated grids, you know, so, you know, kind of not like even less prepared to absorb high variable renewable. Um, uh, uh, fractions uh, in our power systems. Obviously, a lot is changing, and I envision a future in which batteries and whatnot, and um, grid balancing, and all of this is going to solve all of these problems. But we're not there. Um, some countries like Kenya, you know, we have really good um, uh, zero carbon base load. We have geothermal, for you know, we've you know, mm -hmm. which is like really abandoned. It's doing really well. Um, even so, with our geography, you know, you, we need a lot of, you know, we need dis dispatchable energy in some population centers that are away from where our geothermal is. But, you know, for the most part, countries like Kenya, countries like Ethiopia with a very kind of abundant zero carbon base load are going to be fine. I'm sure uh, in, over the next few decades, maybe advanced nuclear will kind of help rebalance the zero carbon base load equation, even in African countries, who knows that's, that's coming. But, you know, you look at like a country like Ghana, this is this is not a, this, no geothermal, mm -hmm. um, some hydro, very vulnerable. You know, this is not a country that you can say will have, you know, even, you know, can, can absorb massive renewables in the short term without, without natural gas. And so natural gas absolutely has to be um, part of this kind of renewables project. Mm -hmm. In the long term, and this is now what I really struggle with in the long term and, you know, even a challenge for your listeners from the oil and gas industry in the long term, not, not even in the long term to be, what is, uh, I guess, uh, by 2050, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is not that long, it's getting it's closer. coming up soon, <laughs> we do need to, we do need to somehow take carbon out mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of our of our oil and gas system somehow obviously i'm not naive we we it's it's going to take a lot to 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 um substitute fossils in in many industries uh you know uh, in many sectors I'm, I'm not i don't know and i and this is where i don't know the answers but this is something that we have to figure out otherwise we're all in trouble um well, i was just reading oh go ahead I was just saying this this morning. I, I I was catching up on um, articles that I'd bookmarked that I didn't have time to read over the past couple of weeks, and one of them was Michael Weber, who is uh, mm -hmm. we're all massive fans. Wrote this piece about natural gas and climate, and I I just you know I went in before I even clicked it open. I was like, please, Michael, have some answers for us. Like, give us a miracle, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it was just a really nuanced article saying exactly this. Like, we can't natural like this is like natural gas has to be part of you know a part of our energy systems for quite a while to come and we need to figure out a way to decarbonize it and we just there are many options there are many leads but it's still there's no silver bullet and i think mm -hmm. this is where i have to hold in one hand um 
one, the, the, the special case for Africa. So I think it's mm -hmm. easy to be somebody talking about natural gas in Africa. Like I said, this is completely neg negligible climate impact. But then when I try to put my global citizen hat, I'm like, okay, fine. We need to figure out a way to kind of take the carbon out of our fossils because fossils will have to have some part to play for a while. Yeah, I think you articulate really well an idea that that we a theme throughout our podcast, which is in order to participate in meeting the energy needs of today, the oil and gas industry has to be creating, articulating, envisioning mm -hmm. and executing on a decarbonizing energy system. Because this mm -hmm. story that we're, you and I are telling each other is much more compelling if we can very clearly see today's natural gas infrastructure transitioning to tomorrow's zero carbon infrastructure, whether mm -hmm. that's through capture and sequestration or transition to mm -hmm. hydrogen or, or local RNG or who knows what. But I think um, th those two ideas, I love that we're landing here, which is we have to meet these energy needs of today. We should collectively prioritize them, but it only is really compelling when the oil and gas industry is working in partnership with, I like your word, the you know global citizen, all of us wearing our global citizen hats to decarbonize. So again, you're, you're creating a really, I think a, a picture that gives each person their call to action in, in the mix. Um, so let me move towards our, our wrap up, Rose. I wanna um, hear a little bit about, so 2020, so challenging for everyone <laughs> in all our work, no matter what we did. And here we go, are going into 2021 where we're coming out of perhaps, hopefully the, uh, you know, at some point the COVID pandemic and we can turn our attention to other priorities. In, in what ways ha have your values changed or being reaffirmed in your, in your work? How do you, where, where do you turn to your values in your work? Because values is something I'm really trying to bring into my work um, with the industry. So we're really attuned to our, our different levels of responsibility, but also the things that bring us a sense of meaning and joy as well. Uh, that's a great question. I actually just recently had to go through a values exercise and I think I came up with like a list of like 30 values or something. And uh, my, friend was like, no, it has to, yeah, my friend was like, no, it has to be like maximum three or something. <laughs> and I was like, what? But I value all of these things. What is a value? <laughs> but she then, you know, um, I, I cribbed a little bit from hers, which uh, I think were good, uh, encapsulated a lot of my kind of very many uh, uh, many individual ones. So, you know, I think some, some things that I really, really care about and really kind of guide me when I make, what I try to think about what I want to do and where I see myself and the kind of impact I want to have. So, and, and the kind of, um, activities or kind of, uh, uh, things that I would like to be a part of and engage in is, you know, one is just creativity. Mm. And I use that to mean, really in the broadest sense possible. So that, that just creativity there, I think replaced like 10 individual. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was very Thanks. creative of you to just like, <laughs> loop them all in. <laughs> yeah, into one. And you know, I just, and that's like, this is like what we're discussing today. The big problems and just complex dynamics. We need to like think big and different and be curious and kind of be interdisciplinary and, you know, just, not be cynical, really just have this mm. really open mind. And I think COVID has made that more important than ever when like, you know, like the status quo or life as you know it, or you're used to it changes so much. It's where do you re reach 
reach to mm-hmm. to kind of you know figure out a new way or even be able to kind of um uh come to terms with the idea that like a new way is possible and so I think and and then also under creativity we need like really smart people like you know we need you know just lots of brain power so I think uh creativity is needed now more than ever um the other thing is um just inclusivity writ large and this is a big driving force for me it's just like who are all of the people who are not at the table what are all of the kind of who are let's go to all of the kind of uh unexpected places and find all of the kind of unusual suspects or you know whatever you call it and bring those people in is it young voices is it women is it rural people is it whatever it is like just a big big tent you know and in our space and energy which has just been like super nerdy engineery type maybe plus some lawyers thrown in for good measure (laughs) or the other people that should be you know part of this conversation how can we just really have such an inclusive tent not just in the the problem solving bit but like who are we solving for like what is what is the neighborhood who are we what is the neighborhood how are we defining it who are our neighbors who are the people that we're that are kind of our peers that we're like who are we working for and with and whatnot and then I think the third one is just um this kind of deep sense of of service and mission and uh, you know we live in uh, it, it almost seems kind of cheesy but I mean, that has always really motivated me is really wanting to do things that go beyond myself and and make a difference and you know I really think we are maybe uh well, I mean possibly hopefully reaching peak greed and peak selfishness I don't know it seems like we have capacity for more (laughs) Um, I I just really would love to see in myself and in more people um, a really a really sincere sense of service really deep inside and in everything that we do and not in this kind of kumbaya way but wherever you are whether you're professional you work in an office or where whatever it is that you do that just a real service driven frame and that sense of wanting to to make a positive impact for ourselves our neighbors our children whatever whoever it is mm-hmm. and that that more and more people would be driven by that and again um the past year has just demonstrated how much that is needed more than ever so those those were my three kind of buckets but if, if you want the long list I can share it with you now, I, I I love the the image you're creating which I'm just gonna um, digest for myself because it really is a, a potent has the potential in it of a call to action to all of us and all of our listeners, which is we have this seemingly almost impossible problem of cli- addressing climate decarbonizing the energy system at the same time that we bring billions of people out of po- poverty and have a gazillion people coming uh, to working age where we also need to give them a, a dignity and, and the, the opportunity to meet their potential. So it seems impossible. It seems intractable. And yet here you invoke uh, creativity, bringing other people, the other people that we're not thinking of them. I have solutions out there in different corners of the neighborhood and do this with a collective service mindset, which I think we all yearn for, no matter how nerdy, no matter how powerful, we all yearn at the end of the day to have a sense, make a contribution and know that our lives made the world better. So I just think you painted a picture, not just of your own values, but of a way for each of us to be thinking about this from a new perspective where we can plant the seeds within our own hearts 
to be a part, to be a part of creating the solution and contributing, contributing to, to this vision you create. So let me ask you your final question, which is, um, I'm just gonna ask you to dig deep one more time, Rose. Um, so given that, given, I mean, you've really set kind of a high bar for yourself with these values. <laughs> um, what, in what I way- I mean, they're you, aspirational. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> aspirational, right, right. Every day we're still, we still are, we still have to put our shoes on, <laughs> you know, each day. Well, maybe not if you're working from home. Uh, on some days we have to put our shoes on. I'm, I'm definitely um, not wearing shoes right now, so. Right, <laughs> I know, I don't know, what, why, why did I say shoes? We never wear shoes anymore. Um, but Rose, how are you changing your own leadership style? Like, what are the ways that you're, um, changing the way you are as a leader to rise to this moment? Yeah, this uh, such such a big question and it really has given me pause, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. So much, obviously, again, it's almost like everything has changed. Uh, who am mm -hmm. I even? But, right. uh, no, I think one big thing um, has been, you know, I think I always understood myself to be, and I think this is true, to be a very kind of adaptable, resilient person who mm -hmm. kind of kind of thrives with uncertainty. And, you know, all of us kind of, you know, women um, kind of kind of who really aspire to be strong, to be examples, mm -hmm. to be, you know, to not be defined <laughs> by the expectations of society to rise above. You know, I think like there's this kind of like, um, um, you know, I can do it. Um, mentality that is really deeply ingrained and I, I I have you know very long track record I can really look back at my life and really see all of the ways that like that kind of grit has served mm -hmm. me in resilience and at a, 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 a being adaptable and whatnot and I think what 2020 into now 2021 and, and COVID and all of this and this kind of kind of train wreck of a year we've all had both in a macro sense and individual <laughs> sense for many has taught me is you know maybe it's time to relinquish a little bit this that part of that narrative that is doesn't give room for a lack of control mm. you know that like it's still you know that somehow you know in this self-narrative I had it was this almost um assigning to myself this superhuman strength to always mm -hmm. bend mm -hmm. the world to my will and uh, you know this kind of like will kind of carve out a path whatever and I think that has served me and many women mm -hmm. well for a long time but there are limits to that and that you know maybe kind of just um uh you know how, how can I say it like um substituting one set of best laid plans for another set of best laid mm -hmm. plans mm -hmm. is not always a way sometimes just really accepting that circumstances are beyond your control and having humility and self-compassion in the sense of that, as opposed to constantly problem solving. I think that has, uh, I, I think I've, I've, that, that lesson has been deepened for me mm. to kind of curtail a little bit this like uh, can do all the time problem solve mentality, just letting go, being humble, having self-compassion. I think that has really helped me support my team better, my colleagues better also once I've applied that to myself. Mm. I have to admit this year brought that lesson to me too. I relate to your um, for, former self view of bending the world to your will. And even when COVID started, my writing and my advice was let's make the most of it hard. <laughs> and, and here we are, you know, nothing like a pandemic to get stuff done. Um, <laughs> but now I, I too am facing that uh, making space for what is. 
Um, and when I hear you speak, of course, I don't know when I'm having this conversation in my head, but I also understand as I hear you say it, that makes room for the creativity for the other players mm -hmm. at the table. When, when we're so busy crafting and executing a plan, maybe there, there isn't quite enough room for the new solutions, the new people, the inclusive tent. So um, Rose, thanks for being willing to share to share that with us. I think you've given us a lot, a lot to think about. Th thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. This is a really fun conversation and uh, look forward to more, hopefully in person someday soon. I hope so too. Thank you, Rose. All right, thanks. That was our episode for today. Thanks so much to Rose uh, for taking time to share her, her thoughts and really interesting insights with us. Um, one thing that was game changing for me was this idea of invisible super juice as, an, as, as a description for electricity. I really think it captures uh, this idea, even here in the US, of how, uh, how much we take our energy for granted. And yet it is so vital to everything we do. Um, I'd like to know what you thought was interesting. Um, so please visit our podcast web website at energythinks.com slash podcast and let me know. Of course, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and other major podcast platforms. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment and rate us. It is really helpful. I would like to thank, as always, Michael Tanner, Lindsay Gage, and Scott Marshall for taking the time to make this podcast possible. Thank you for listening to the Energy Thinks podcast. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours ha happiness, prosperity, and good health.